Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Good morning. Uh, welcome to the Harvard School of Public Health Forum. This is one in a series, the Andalo series in current science controversies. Uh, the topic today is trust in vaccines, why it matters. Um, vaccines, of course, are one of the tools thought to be the most important in the history of medicine. We have uh, decade by de decade saved uh, tens of millions of lives with vaccines. We have eradicated uh, one disease, small, smallpox. We're about to eradicate a second polio. But in our time, controversy has arisen around these things as well. So the, we will talk about the vaccines and the challenges and what we do now. Uh, I'm Philip Hiltz, the director of the Night Science Journalism Program at MIT. I'll be your moderator. And I'd like to introduce the panel, Dr. Barry Bloom, who is the former dean of the uh, Harvard School of Public Health. Um, he is a figure, large figure in immunology and infectious disease uh, for many years. Um, he's a member of the National Academy of Sciences. He has advised the White House and has worked with the uh, World Health Organization for more than 40 years. Uh, Dr. Marie McCormick, Professor of Maternal and Child Health at the Harvard School of Public Health. She is a pediatrician who has focused on the health of women and children, and in particular, uh, the premature infants. She has served as chair of the Institute of Medicine Committee on Immunization Safety and has served on the National Vaccine Advisory Committee, co-chairing working groups on uh, vaccine safety. Um, and we have uh, Dr. Richard Malley, um, the Division of Infectious Disease at the Children's Hospital of Boston. Uh, he studies the immune, immune responses to the common human pathogen Streptococcus pneumoniae. Uh, he's working on, on understanding the way the body represents, uh, responds to the pathogen and builds immunity to it and is working to develop new vaccines. And across the water, we have uh, Dr. Heidi Larson, London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, uh, where she is an anthropologist who works on the project to support the public confidence in immunization. Uh, her research specializes in the social and political factors uh, that affect policies and programs, and in particular, on risk and rumor management in health. So let's start with Dr. Barry Bloom, if you can give us a little background in the topic. Well, I would say that if, if prevention of disease is the major focus of public health, then uh, our best tool uh, to make that case is vaccines, which are the most effective in both human and uh, monetary terms of any intervention to prevent disease. Um, Vaccines are given, we give 14 vaccines to children in the United States. WHO in various countries gives um, different numbers. Uh, they're wonderful at uh, preventing disease and exposure to infectious diseases in children where children are immunized, uh, but they're not 100% effective uh, in any case. So um, it is remarkable that they have been so overwhelmingly effective at a population level for two reasons. One is they uh, protect children who are exposed to disease. Uh, even if they get sick, they most often don't die. And uh, more importantly, and often not appreciated, is by immunizing a lot of uh, people in a population, you protect others that are not immunized. It's a population protection or community protection effect 
which is quite profound. And the question is, uh, why is that important? Well, there are little kids, infants, that can't be immunized yet with vaccines or don't respond well. Um, there are elderly people who don't respond well to vaccines who are exposed to kids with infectious diseases. And then within almost any school, there are children with some sort of illness or immunodeficiency so that we protect the most vulnerable by accepting vaccines for ourselves. Finally, let me just say that one of the extraordinary achievements of public health is that as of this year, 107 million children in the world get some or all of their major vaccines, which is astonishing, which WHO estimates uh, saves about um, two and a half million lives that would otherwise die. That still leaves 22 million kids that need vaccines, and we have to make the case as to how we can make that happen. Marie? I think um, from the work on the National Vaccine Advisory Committee and others that one of the contributions to why people are uncertain about vaccines is that they really don't perceive the vaccine safety system, which is a major substantial effort to both assuring the safety and efficacy of vaccines, uh, but also characterizing those adverse events that occur. So it starts with the clinical uh, work done by the pharmacy companies, goes through uh, the, mobile, you know, the use of the vaccine. There's an early warning system called the Vaccine Adverse Reporting uh, System that people can, anybody can report to, to very, very complex analytic systems, uh, such as analyzing millions of records of patients and HMOs in this country. And at each step of this way, what I don't think people understand is that there is an independent committee with both professional and public members that looks at the process and decides about the next step. Uh, all the way from the people who decide on the licensure to committees of the Institute of Medicine and the vaccine compensation program that identify those things that they really consider adverse events from vaccines. And so there's an, a substantial effort there, not only to assure safety, but also to make sure that we understand what adverse events there are. And I don't think people appreciate how much work goes into to that system. Let's jump uh, across the water. Dr. Heidi Larson. Hi. Um I think that it's been framed well that uh, vaccines are one of the, the best as a preventive measure. And I think that safety is a recognized concern. But one of the things we've learned over the years is that it's just not enough for parents. I think there's a, it's a changed uh, disease environment. We're, we've actually, some say we're the victims of our success in terms of immunization. On the other hand, we have a number of people who say, well, actually, they're overconfident about their own health and say measles wasn't so bad. I had it as a child, um, and perhaps they were lucky. But we have a mix of reasons. The, the work I'm doing uh, leading at the London School that has grown out of uh, some years of work I did with UNICEF is trying to track and assess how this plays out globally. Uh, we've seen a lot of pockets of problems growing globally. Um, this is not just a U.S. phenomena, although I, I should add that issues that emerge in the U.S. quickly get picked up globally. Um, it's, what do they say, when the U.S. sneezes, the world catches a flu. It's, um, it happens in, in different ways. Um, there's a number of different events that have provoked it. Uh, we've, I think a lot of people know about the, the abysmally low acceptance of the H1N1 vaccine in 2009. Um, we also had issues 
related to the the measles and and the Andrew Wakefield episode that had many different dimensions. He's become the focus of it, but there were a lot of other factors in that. We had a big boycott of polio vaccines in northern Nigeria in 2003 to 2004 that has absolutely gone global um, in terms of the consequent spread of polio. And that, I think, was, in my mind, from a global perspective, what happened in northern Nigeria in 2003-2004, which, by the way, was influenced by U.S. politics, what was happening at the time of the Iraq War, among other factors. The fact that that boycott, which was initially five states and then one that persisted for 11 months, was absolutely only based on a rumor. There was no adverse event. There was no scientific evidence of a problem. I think it shook up the global immunization community. It's been to recognize that there can be global impacts of non-vaccination. I think in trying to get a handle on how big this issue of vaccine acceptance is, we really don't know. What we do know is that it's we do have pockets around the world of, of non-vaccinators, and part of the issue with uh, trust in vaccine is that the trusters tend to be in groups. They tend to be in social networks. It would be much better if we had individual... Um, refusers or questioners disparate in the population. But as uh, Barry says, that a lot of what the value and and the magic about vaccines is the the extra protective effects it does community-wide. But that has the inverse issue that we're facing in trust with vaccines, that unfortunately the 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 questioners and distrusters tend to be in, in social networks, whether it's religious, political... Um, kind of immune, healthy, um, the, the alternative medicine groups, whatever. So, and this is happening globally. I, I won't carry on. We want to keep for questions. But I, I guess my main point is that this is a global phenomena. Um, unfortunately, the rest of the world doesn't have as good of a system that the U.S. does in terms of vigilance on safety, although there is quite a big effort with WHO and countries to constantly improve it. But one of the things we're saying is is safety is crucial, fundamental, but not enough. Richard? Um, Well, I have just two thoughts. Um, One of them is I want to get back to something that Marie just said, which is, There was a very interesting example of the rotavirus, the first rotavirus vaccine that was licensed in the United States. Um, It it was, in a way, a beautiful example of how the safety net works, but it was interpreted, I think, by the general population as a sign of vaccine failure and sort of fueled a lot of these discussions. This was a vaccine that had some very, very slight signals of intussusception, the telescoping of the intestines in very young kids, that was noticed but was not of statistical significance in the very early trials of the vaccine. And once the vaccine got licensed and the rate seemed to be higher than than expected in children who had received the vaccine, particularly in very young, the vaccine was pulled. And it was taken off the market and now new vaccines against rotavirus that do not have this problem are widespread. So to many of us, this was a beautiful example of how, uh, first of all, The safety of vaccines can never be guaranteed. We do studies to try to make sure that they are effective and primarily also safe. And then you continue those studies once the vaccine is licensed in case you have a very rare 
frequency of events that is increased uh, when people get the vaccine. So to many of us in the vaccine community, this was, and to pediatricians, this was actually a success story, even though the vaccine was a failure. But of course, the way the, the patients and parents viewed it was, and you, one can understand this, as a, an example of how vaccines do harm. And I think that disconnect, in a way, uh, exemplifies why this whole topic is so difficult. We believe there are safety systems that enable you to, to determine whether a vaccine is safe early or not and pull it if there are these very rare instances that are serious and, and deserve attention. But to the general population, it was a sign that the, va that the whole vaccine industry and the vaccine researchers uh, were either uh, incompetent or, uh, or worse, uh, dishonest. Uh, the second point I would make is I think there's also a disconnect. There was a disconnect between pediatricians uh, such as myself and, and I think the uh, um, uh, sort of general population in terms of the amount of conversation that vaccines need during a regular pediatrician visit. Uh, for those of you who have kids, you, you probably know that uh, it, it's a very, in most cases, a very brief conversation. You, the person administering the vaccine may not even be your pediatrician. It's in many instances a, a, a nurse or a nurse practitioner in the clinic. Uh, the amount of information that is being delivered is generally at the end of the visit when uh, the doctor is on the way out or the nurse is coming in with the needles. Ha uh, sheets are handed out to, uh, to parents explaining the pros and cons of the vaccine, the risks and so forth. But they're you know, written in a very stylized fashion that may not correspond to the needs of every family member uh, that is faced with this decision. And I think it may have taken pediatricians and general practitioners and nurses and so forth a fair amount of time to recognize that what we thought was obvious, all the points that, that Barry, Marie, and Heidi made, it's, it's a clearly very useful intervention for the individual but also for the community, uh, that that was lost uh, on the... Uh, that, that there was a disconnect between what the individual person in the clinic was thinking and the physicians, the healthcare practitioners were, were believing was a, uh, an obvious uh, um, implication of the administration of the vaccine. Mm -hmm. Well, let's take a couple of questions from the audience. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Uh, Miranda Daniloff Mancusi. I'm a staff member here at the School of Public Health. Um, and I was so interested in what Heidi was talking about, about the sort of rumor mill and rumor uh, management. Um, and I'm just wondering if you could speak a little bit more to that. Um, and, and also, th th another question I had is, you know, I know a lot of parents are anxious about uh, the MMR vaccine in particular, um, and whether or not sort of addressing how that is administered, maybe spreading it out over a, a longer period of time, whether that would help in sort of the rumor, the rumor mill. Mm -hmm. Let's you. start with Heidi. Oh, I love the topic of, of rumors, actually. Um, and I often say that rumors have a bad reputation um, because they're often seemed uh, perceived as derogatory when in fact um, the spread of information can actually be constructive. Um, you, I heard two questions there. One is uh, about rumors in general, but I, I would just say that rumors matter, but rumors technically are defined as pieces of unfinished, incomplete information. And I think that um, I taught a course once on, on rumors in health, and one of my students wrote an essay saying that it's kind of like a piece of information sitting on trial waiting for the jury to come to the conclusion. And in the case of vaccines, it's, it's the public that in some senses is the jury. 
And I think rumors um, are a really important uh, frame and, and thing to think about in the context of trust in vaccines. And I think that one of the issues is between the time that there's a rumor or a perception of an issue and the time that the safety system kicks in to technically investigate it and then get that officially registered, the longer that period of time is, the more space there is for the public to come to their own decision about what's happened and what's really going on. I think we're, we're getting better as an immunization community to at least along the way say that there is an investigation going on. Um, I think the Wakefield and the MMR example is a perfect example of what was going on with the system. I'm sitting in the UK right now, but there's been a recent series, well, not so recent now, but last year in the BMJ, the British Medical Journey Journal, which was also a journey, um, <laughs> looking, <laughs> look, looking at the whole Wakefield saga and unpacking it, and basically, on the one hand, criticizing Wakefield, but really what the series was much more about was the system. What was going on with the system to take nearly a decade or more to investigate this case, to kind of deal with the, the take the qualification or credentials away, to retract the article, um, what was happening? And in the meanwhile, the actual impact um, in terms of decline in vaccination coverage didn't happen in 1999 after the 1998 article was published. It was almost eight years later that was the nadir of vaccine confidence or vaccine acceptance. And I think one of the challenges here is that we can't, we think that because a rumor might have gone quiet that we fixed the problem. This is a really slow issue. This is something that takes months, years sometimes to uh, unravel and have an impact, both in terms of vaccine coverage and in terms of um, the system response. And I think one thing that is clear is that we really need to shorten the time between when a rumor or an incomplete piece of information emerges and when it gets addressed. Um, the MMR issue has an abundance, an abundance of safety information that has repeatedly confirmed that there is no, that there's no causal effect between MMR and autism, for instance, in that case. And a number, and there's lots of research, as we know, on the Marisol, and it still has not stopped what the perception is. And one of the things that we look at, as I mentioned here at the Vaccine Confidence Project, is the global spread. I did an article a couple months ago on the emergence of an anti-vaccination anti groups in South Africa. We get reports of, of issues in Indonesia, in countries around the world. I don't mean to single out Indonesia, but this is now. Uh, next year will be, um, well, next year's 2013. I'm just thinking back of when 1998, it's 15 years after this, and now we're just starting to see the refusals pop up in a lot of countries around the world. So no, I don't think separating the vaccines into individual ones is gonna help. Um, I do think that on the issue of autism, the issue is getting an answer about what's causing autism. That'll, I think, frankly, it's one of the main thing that's gonna divert the attention. Um, 
And I think communication, I agree communication is, is part of the issue, but I also think that communication is, I have a slide I often use, communication will not fix a problem you don't understand. And I think one of the things we need to do in this area of trust in vaccines is to understand what really is driving this problem. Because we've been very quick, um, if we're doing a systematic review now of all the literature on public trust in vaccines, and there's really a lot of suggestions of what we need to do, but there's no real evaluation of interventions, and we really need to shift our rigor in understanding the issues behind this and the interventions to be the same rigor that we have in the epidemiology of it. Want to add anything? Barry? No, I think Wendy, uh, uh, Heidi said it all, and um, uh, I guess I would only focus on um, the interaction between a parent and the healthcare provider is the critical interaction. And um, there's a very small number of people who believe vaccines do harm. They may be very vocal. They may be on the internet. They may start rumors. Uh, it's hard to get the evidence uh, when you have to show that uh, vaccines don't cause epilepsy. These are 350,000 person trials carried on for many, many years. Uh, science moves more slowly than, than rumors. But I think the focus really needs to be on um, not so much those that are actively engaged in denying, but parents that are genuinely concerned about what to do that's best for their children. And they hear from the internet, from the radio, from the press, uh, from movie actors, and mostly from their parent groups doubts, and that is our responsibility in communication, um, not to tell them what to do, but to acknowledge their concerns, address their concerns with the best information we have, and advise them what we think is best for their kids. And that could make a bigger difference than ignoring them or telling them this is what you have to do. Right. So let's go for another question. Others? Hi, I'm Alexandria King-Close from the Division of Policy Translation and Leadership Development here at the School of Public Health. Um, I'm wondering what can we do, um, perhaps those of us other than just physicians or pediatricians, um, to encourage parents to vaccinate their children and help them understand that by not doing so, they're putting others at risk for outbreaks of preventable diseases. And maybe this would, um, this would focus on some of those particular groups that are um, non-vaccinators currently. You want to try that, Marie? Um, this also relates to the MMR question mm. that not vaccinating um, is not risk-free, and that's not risk-free for your own child. I think I'm quoting a notable member of our audience and saying that most of these infectious diseases are less than a plane ride away, and that you, you know, your child will be exposed to these, even if you think, well, I'm not going to these, these countries where there are outbreaks of these diseases. So I think one issue is to understand that by not vaccinating your child, you're putting your child at risk um, for getting the, the kinds of diseases because they are. They are they're, they're coming into the country. Um, and I think it's important for them to understand that it's not just everybody around them protecting their child, but their child will be at risk for these conditions. So I think that's one element in talking about what the advantages of vaccines are. Richard, thought on this? Um, <clears throat> 
I mean, uh, as a pediatrician, I think I, I, I think of what I can do, um, and I'm trying to think of your question in terms of sort of the global view, and I would agree completely with Marie. From the point of view of the pediatrician again, and maybe it relates also to an educated, uh, sort of knowledgeable member of the community trying to communicate information to a less knowledgeable member of the community, I think there has to be an, um, a statement of humility. And, and I was thinking about what Barry was saying. Uh, I, I run the travel clinic at Children's Hospital, so this is a very different setting. We see children who are going, going to go precisely uh, uh, a few hours away by plane where they will be exposed to diseases that are eradicated or non-existent in this country. Uh, and it's a very different situation because they're coming by the fact that they're coming to our clinic, they're willing to have a conversation about vaccines. But even in that context, uh, I remember at times feeling um, a little harassed, uh, sometimes, you know, I'm, I'll say it, uh, offended that somebody was questioning my medical judgment when I was recommending a series of immunizations that are standard recommendations across different countries and, and over the years. And it, it always takes me, hopefully not too long, to recognize that I have to do precisely what Barry is talking about, which is to acknowledge that if I come down with a very strict dictate of these are all the things that your child requires and this is why you're here and I'm going to do them, I'm going to lose my audience very, very quickly. Uh, I've gotten much better, I think, at, at uh, doing this. It's, I think I was also taken a little bit aback initially when you would hear people say, what if you gave me this vaccine today and then the next one I'll come back in three and a half weeks to get the second one. And, and you know, as a physician trying to organize your clinic and your patients, you're, you're thinking, I, I don't really have time to you know, cherry pick each vaccine for each individual patient. But the fact is people uh, expect that to a certain extent, that they are uh, partic active participants in their own health care and they want to have a negotiation, a discussion with you about what they want. And my, maybe when I was younger, my initial reaction was to sort of come down a little bit more strictly and say, look, this is what we're recommending today. We're not sure we could see you in a few weeks when you want to come back for the second part of my recommendations. And I think over the years, I've, I and I think many, many physicians and nurses and so forth have changed our tune a little bit to try to adapt. That said, I completely agree with the idea that you know, splitting a vaccine into three different components when there's absolutely no evidence that that would help and it conveys the sense that we are somehow hiding the truth from patients is a terrible idea. And so what we try to do is to come up with some compromise that doesn't reduce the efficacy of the vaccine or the likelihood that it's going to work, that doesn't sort of, but at the same time doesn't convey the view to the parent that we know best and they should just follow our recommendations. Okay, in our format today, what we're going to do is uh, go back to each of the panelists for another short a uh, moment to give them, uh, they have a few other things they want to say. We'll go the full round. And then after that, we'll open it up uh, to the uh, questions for the rest of the hour. Uh, starting again with Barry. So one of the questions Phil had asked earlier is, um, why are we concerned about this issue? Vaccine coverage in the U.S. is really remarkably good. Uh, the number of uh, deniers is very, very small. But there are some reasons that we have to be concerned. Uh, Marie pointed out, and I'll be specific, we have 55 million travelers, travelers from overseas who enter the United States, and we have almost 60 million Americans who travel abroad and return. And anyone can bring back almost anything uh, on an airplane, and over half of the outbreaks 
uh, that have now been increasing across the country in uh, outbreaks of vaccine-preventable diseases are started by mostly visitors, Americans who travel abroad, a kid comes back, goes to school, and spreads measles in uh, Wisconsin. Um, we have 18,000 cases of whooping cough in uh, this country at the moment uh, in 2012. Why is that? Well, half of the kids, more than half of the kids, have not been vaccinated. And Washington state is one of those states that has a lot of people who question the value of vaccines. But I would point out, many of those kids are too young to be vaccinated. And their risk is being in a place with other children who uh, should have been vaccinated, but have not been. And that's the basis uh, for outbreaks. A more general reason that uh, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences has been concerned about and asked me to help with is there is a declining trust in science. There's a declining trust in doctors. There's a declining trust in government. And all of this is related in some manner to the very specific case that was raised in presidential primaries in the case of uh, HPV vaccine um, that raises the question of what our motivation is, what the evidence base is, and uh, whose interest is it uh, to vaccinate children. And I think those of us in, in the health business have only one interest, which is to see that kids uh, do not suffer from diseases that were devastating 25 to 100 years ago. And the question we ask is, do parents have to see 10,000 kids crippled from polio? Or do they have to see hundreds of children wheezing, uh, threatened with life-threatening uh, pertussis to realize uh, what vaccines actually do? Marie? I think I'm going to come back to the safety system for a moment. Uh, I think individual pediatricians may have learned to be more forthcoming uh, about talking about the pros and cons of vaccines. I'm not sure the, the professional community as a community has it. And I'm speaking really from the perspective of having chaired the working group that oversaw the safety of the uh, epidemic H1N1 2009 vaccine. And uh, I think one of the interesting parts of that experience is, first of all, uh, our, our working group, which was selected with very, very strict conflict of interest criteria, actually had the opportunity on a regular basis to see the preliminary data from all of the systems and not only the systems that I've talked about, but there were specific systems that were put in place to look for things like Guillain-Barre syndrome, which was a well-recognized complication to monitor pregnant women and so forth. Now, if you ever want to see science have, scientists have hives, ask them to see their preliminary data. Okay, because they are really, really nervous about how you're going to do it. And this was a very, you know, have an outside group look at your preliminary data. Um, but we did this and had long conversations. I think it was every other week. But I think what was very important was that our committee reported in an open meeting the results of what we were seeing. Some of the preliminary complications went away with more precise analysis, and that's exactly what you'd expect. But I think one of the issues that, that we found very helpful is that we would stand up in an open meeting 
with people from the public there who could ask questions about what we were seeing and about what was happening with that, that vaccine. I don't think the professional community dealing with vaccine safety is that open yet. Uh, and permitting people to really examine, even for themselves, access to some of the data for secondary analysis. I mean, Glaxo last week said they were going to open some of their clinical trials to secondary analysis. And I think that kind of openness that says, you know, um, we're not really hiding anything here, folks. You know, take a look at this. And, and knowing that the risks that you can have some pretty poor analyses done, uh, but on the whole, I think opening this process up to greater scrutiny and greater openness and questioning would help. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Heidi? Yes, I, I think that um, the openness issue and what Barry referred to as acknowledgement is really crucial. We've done a number of interviews with parents who have basically switched from being general acceptors to uh, not not positive about vaccines. And they talk about the turning point as when they started to get this feeling that doors were being closed, their questions weren't being answered, and it kind of fed a kind of suspicion that they had. So I, I absolutely agree with the acknowledgement and the openness. In terms of the question that came up in the audience about what can we do outside of pediatricians and, and the, um, the in immediate healthcare provider circle, I actually think it is one of the most critical areas that we need to build kind of collaborations with. Um, one of the issues with, the, with vaccines is that it's very owned and regulated by the health system, much more so than a lot of other preventive health cares. You can go out and get a condom or you can um, get certain things in the bed net in some countries or there's other other kind of preventive health care, behavioral interventions to prevent NCDs. You as an individual have much more participatory possibilities. It's the, Vaccines is one of the least participatory for good safety reasons, for a lot of good reasons, uh, for the whole herd reasons, but it does make it more vulnerable. Um, since the first vaccine with Jenner, there were anti-vaccination groups. Actually, there were anti-compulsory vaccination groups. And part of the whole issue with, with vaccine, and one of our big challenges, is the requirements, is the, the system decides. So I think the more that people, we get engagement outside to answer the question of what people can do, um, a lot. I mean, I think there's a lot that community groups can do. The, the influencers that are questioning are often religious groups. There's social networks. It's other parents at the school, in the knitting circle, to use, I'm sorry, I don't mean um, to be derogatory about that, but, but professional groups have hobbies, whatever. I love knitting, so I'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, book clubs, you know, whatever. I, I mean, I'm talking about different settings, but in other, in other places, um, I think with the whole polio thing, one of the ways that things got turned around was engaging the religious networks. I was just reading today also that um, in our, we constantly monitoring what issues are coming up in the news. Today it was an interesting, two things came up in the news. The issue of... Um, emerging and worrying anti-vaccination groups in, in Israel and outbreaks of mumps. This is in Israel, kind of simultaneous with this New England Journal of Medicine um, article about uh, similar issues in the U.S. And on the other hand, 
I was, we got an article in about the um, emerging developing country vaccine manufacturers anxiety because in a, in a conference in Indonesia, the Indonesian, the religious groups are trying to say that everything needs to be halal. And the vaccine companies are saying, I mean, according to Muslim tradition, they're saying you're going to shut down the vaccine groups. So in these cases, engaging religious groups is important. And it doesn't matter if it's Muslim, Jewish, Christian, in the case of some of the early anxieties about the the tetanus vaccine that led to the mayor of Manila shutting down and forbidding tetanus vaccine in the 1980s came out of a pro-life Catholic network. So it's not about any individual religion. It's about social networks to get back to what I was saying before. And it's the same. There are different kinds of networks, a million of them um, popping up through Facebook and other, other ways. But I think we need to look outside. And if we look also at what's influencing parent decisions, to a certain extent, it is the um, still, I have to say, despite the declining trust in the world um, in general, in a lot of the research to date, the one remaining trusted figure in a lot of the parent interviews is the doctor, is the healthcare worker. So I think we need to kind of hold on to that and nurture that because it's one of the few trusted places that we do have. But in addition to that, it's peer and social networks. Uh, the only other comment I would make is that, you know, we're in a much more complex environment right now. Um, there's a lot more vaccines in the world. There's a lot more decisions. This isn't, um, I sometimes hear, you know, this is because of the Internet. Well, not really. I mean, it, the Internet has not helped us, um, but uh, we have a lot more decisions to make with vaccines in different countries. Um, so I think we're going to have to come to terms w with that. But at any rate, I I'll come back to the just the issue of engaging outside of the, the health care system to supplement and support what we're trying to do inside the health system. Mm -hmm. Richard. Well, uh, I guess in any conflictual situation, there might be a silver lining. And I'll give you one example of where this whole debate about trust in vaccines and how there is this um, tension that exists between uh, the healthcare establishment and, and patients may in some, in some rare situations might actually help. So one of the projects that I work on is the development of a uh, vaccine for the developing world against pneumococcus. So this is a pathogen for which we have a vaccine that is instituted in the U.S., also in, in Western Europe. It's very expensive. It, uh, at, at current estimates, it's about $300 per child uh, to immunize them with uh, uh, pneumococcal vaccines in the U.S. And uh, while it's effective in the U.S., it has issues uh, that limit its effectiveness theoretically in, in settings where it hasn't been instituted yet. And in other countries, such as the U.K. and in Europe, it has not had the same impact as it has had in the U.S. So there's a need for other approaches, and my group uh, with uh, PATH and the Gates Foundation has tried to develop a vaccine that would be very inexpensive to make. Uh, it's based on a whole cell, similar to the old whole cell pertussis vaccine that is no longer available in the U.S. Um, the silver lining in all these issues about trust in, in vaccines and, and the trust between the public and, and vaccine manufacturers is that in the development of this vaccine, which is really only designed for countries that are unable to afford the vaccines that, uh, that exist in, in the U.S., all these issues 
are being discussed um, have been discussed from the beginning of the project to make sure that we were not creating a vaccine that would be unacceptable to individuals in the developing world. And the reason for that, of course, is that you could imagine this awful ethical stance that one would take where you take a vaccine that is less safe, less effective, has problems that the vaccines that we use for our own children uh, don't have, and try to institute that in the developing world. It would be abhorrent to all of us in this room to envision something like this. And uh, in addition to that, the idea to try to make such an effort be more acceptable because we will make sure that it goes through the same strict regulations that we are now imposing on vaccines that are developed in the U.S. has, I think, will ultimately help if this vaccine indeed is, is a successful endeavor. Um, we are going through, for example, all the same safety regulations that a vaccine in the U.S. would go through. We are going through the U.S. FDA. We are going to compare it not to some placebo, but compare it to the vaccines that are, that are available in, in developed countries or more developed countries. And I think to a certain extent, all these, this new awareness that there has been a disconnect between what scientists, physicians, healthcare workers, and vaccine manufacturers believe and what the public perceives uh, may lead to a sort of uh, a more uniformed way of trying to develop new vaccines where you have a much, particularly for the developing world, which is, I think has been mentioned, is a major uh, area of, uh, of infectious diseases that could be preventable by, uh, by vaccination. Okay, let's open it up again for questions, maybe questions from online and in the room both. Uh, let's start with the, over here in the room. Well, my name is Ruth Gilprieto. I'm um, an infectious disease epidemiologist in Madrid, Spain, and I'm spending a sabbatical in Harvard Medical School in Vaccine Safety Department of Population Medicine. Uh, so thank you, for first of all, for this talk. And I, I wanted to comment a pair of things. Uh, one is maybe one of the most important things uh, now talking about the pneumococcal vaccines for the developing world is the example that uh, we have with the um, men AfriVac, the meningococcal A vaccination that is, is um, going in, in Africa. And maybe the great success that we all expect and that apparently we are seeing is because it came from the real need of the countries and they asked for it. So, well, the, that's something really interesting to know. But anyway, uh, one of the things that we are facing also in Europe is not only the problems um, with the population, that of course we have anti-vaccination groups, etc., but also the fact that some of our medical doctors, not pediatricians, more GPs, are not so, they believe in vaccines, but they are not so sure of using them themselves. I mean, the self-perception um, self uh, of the risk is different, so I don't use the influence of vaccine myself because I'm not at risk, but I work in a hospital and <laughs> I should use the vaccine not for me, but for this herd protection that we are talking about. But then the day that I have to travel with my kids to India, then I know I have to use the vaccines. So I, I really would like to know if you are facing something similar, if you have these kind of problems, and because I would call it shellfish, uh, be really behavior from the professionals. But, well, I don't know if you are facing that yeah. here in the U.S. Problems yeah. among the physicians themselves. Yeah. <laughs> 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 no, I mean, actually, um, since I'm appointed at three of the hospitals in the area, I, we are required 
to have influenza vaccine or be fired. <laughs> okay. Period. That uh, helps clear that up. That yeah. <laughs> Does that answer your question? Maybe, maybe, maybe you try that in Madrid. <laughs> but, but I do think that the professional, the opinion in some professions that don't see the risk or don't understand the risk uh, has contributed to this. There are certainly pediatricians well known in this country who've written books about different immunization schedules based on no science whatsoever. Uh, mm -hmm. And in fact, increasing the risk. I mean, one of the things about spreading out vaccines is that you're not getting them on time and the period at which you're at risk for the disease extends. And so, you know, I think that dealing with some of the professional concerns as well is very important. It's not just the, the lay public that has concerns about yeah. vaccines. I think we, we mentioned that most of us in this room, for example, will never experience or take care of a patient or experience a, a friend or a relative who has any of the diseases against which we are vaccinating today. Um, and so I think that's one of the issues also with um, physicians in general, and, and um, uh, I think it's, it's, it's certainly true in the U.S., pediatricians probably have a greater acceptance personally and also uh, for their patients a greater uh, uh, attention to getting their patients immunized than general practitioners do or, or internists. Um, one of the reasons I think is uh, just based on your training, uh, it's, it's a huge part of pediatric training to learn about vaccines. But also, just from my own point of view, I, I became a pediatrician in 1990, which was literally the year that the first Haemophilus influenzae type B conjugate vaccine was licensed. In the, it was around that time, 1988, 1990. I was an intern. I was taking care of Haemophilus influenzae meningitis patients and cellulitis patients virtually every night that I was on call. We were routinely called down to the emergency room to admit a patient with a life-threatening Haemophilus influenza type B infection. Within one year, everything that I had learned and that I was hoping I could teach the new interns that had joined my hospital, all that disease was gone. We didn't see one case in my second year at Children's Hospital. So for those of us, and, and unfortunately, I guess, uh, uh, now the intern class has no idea what Haemophilus influenza type B disease looks like. For those of us who lived through that, the experience of seeing one disease that was such a huge part of our fears, of our daily management, of, of what we were <coughs> warning patients to look for, that disease being completely eradicated in one year. I mean, clearly there were still cases, but at least on the hospital level, we hardly saw a case. The only cases we saw were in immunocompromised patients who, uh, who didn't respond to the vaccine. It was such a huge impact that, that that, I think, clearly cemented in many of us the idea that vaccines are so much a part of what keeps children healthy today. But of course, that's an experience that very few people will have personally. Do we have some questions from online? Yes, we do. We have a number of questions. Um, this one is from Peg. And she asked, if I protect myself from various diseases with vaccines, will that weaken my natural immune system? Barry? Um, if, there, there are lots and lots of studies on that because um, when you give 14 vaccines over a 10-year period to kids and many needle sticks in the process, there's the obvious worry, are we stressing the immune system too much? There's a vast amount of data to say quite the contrary, that there is very little evidence and the, the safety stuff that um, uh, you heard on how carefully the timing is 
uh, organized, that's been looked at. There's no evidence that the multiple shots the kids get on a given day actually weaken their immune system. There's even a small amount of evidence globally for a vaccine that we don't use in this country called BCG against tuberculosis, that there's a kind of nonspecific enhancement of immunity to other diseases that are not just tuberculosis. Uh, but by and large, it's a reasonable concern when you see lots of kids get lots of needles. I think there's a lot of scientific evidence to say that's not one to worry about. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. Is there someone here who had a question? Hi, I'm, uh, I'm Aaron Pervin. I'm a domestic health policy student here at the School of Public Health. And I just wanted to ask a quick question. Um, uh, the HPV vaccine, do you see that as kind of an inherently different animal because it mostly only impacts women and also because of the uh, sexual component of it? <laughs> do you know that one? Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's a very good question. The, the HPV vaccine, and, and I should also, as a first disclaimer, I, in the travel clinic, I do not administer the HPV vaccine. So you should, so in that sense, I'm not a real pediatrician. And so I can't tell you that I have, <laughs> I have dealt with the issue, but, but I, I think having thought about it and read about it, there is the, it is the second vaccine that is designed to prevent cancer. Uh, the first one is the hepatitis B vaccine, but that was not how it was presented to the public because, of course, there's, there's the other risk that the hepatitis B vaccine, uh, the other issue that the hepatitis B vaccine prevents uh, hepatitis uh, from hepatitis B, and that is in and of itself a very important thing to, to prevent. But the HPV vaccine, of course, its goal, its, its, uh, its stated uh, uh, efficacy is in prevention of lesions that might then proceed to development of cancer. Um, it is a very different bird. I, I completely agree. And as you probably know now, the recommendation is to immunize boys as well against this uh, uh, pathogen because it, it makes complete sense if you agree on community protection it makes complete sense to immunize not only girls, but also boys. Uh, it is a very different animal. I think it's going to be very interesting to see what the take of this vaccine will be in boys compared to girls, because that will give people who are interested in this type of, uh, uh, for example, anthropological issues, you know, do, do as a society, will we see a very different uh, take of the vaccine because Parents are basically going to have to decide whether it's worthy of immunizing their child, if he is a boy, against a disease to prevent the global spread of this pathogen in, uh, as a cause of cancer in women. Uh, it's, it is different. I, I, um, I think it's going to be a very fascinating story over the next uh, decade to see how this vaccine has been uh, accepted by the public. Uh, and uh, and I, I guess I'll, I'll leave it at that because I don't know. So, Marie, what do you think? Well, I just want to point out that it's actually the second vaccine in which the sexual issue has been raised because hepatitis B was also considered to be given to children to prevent the sexual transmission of hepatitis B later. And, in fact, that was one of the resistance to hepatitis B was that it was conceived to be as a protection for something you didn't even know was going to occur. Um, I think without talking about the acceptance or not, I think it also confronts a very difficult situation in that we have an immunization schedule that's set up for kids to about age seven, and gra getting adolescents um, to be immunized against anything is, is and, and it's just simply because we don't have the systems in place to do it. They're lucky if they see a physician once a year. Um, so I think that, that part of the acceptance or not acceptance is 
getting a system in place where they can actually get the vaccine. So uh, without getting into acceptance or not, I think there's some logistic issues that also impinge on this. Yeah. yeah. I could add, uh, Yogi Berra said uh, uh, <coughs> making predictions is really difficult, particularly in the future. Um, my friends in cancer epidemiology tell me that what they're seeing, this is anecdotal, but the most rapidly increasing form of cancer is head and neck cancers in men over the age of 50, between 50 and 60, that have in them HPV 16 and 18, the same strains that cause cervical cancer in women. So um, scientific evidence may be more compelling for men as the future develops. Yeah. Yeah. Heidi, uh, what is this one like in the UK? Has this issue raised in the same way it raises here? Well. Um, it was an issue in the beginning. The government actually, to the, in, in the case of HPV, did do an interesting exercise, which I think is a shift, um, and I think it was partly reeling after the impacts of the MMR. But the efficacy for HPV with girls, and this was just about girls, is younger than was the acceptability to parents to give to their daughter. So they were negotiating when the age was right. I, th I think the efficacy was more 8, 9 years old, and the acceptability for parents was more 12, 13, and they came to about, I think it was 11 years old. But it was an example of a negotiation. Um, I think we haven't had the same issues. Europe in general doesn't have the same um, levels of... Uh, What's the, I don't know what the word is, but around <laughs> sexuality. <is. laughs> um, I, I, I'll reserve what I could say, but it's a little more um, open-minded about everything from uh, this, this HPV and sexu sexuality issues as well as abortion and a, a lot of other reproductive health issues. But, but one of the, one of the um, other examples of HPV, which we've, we've looked at, and I... Um, was the shutdown of the HPV vaccine demonstration project in India uh, last year, or two years ago. It was April of 2010. Um, and this was, the HPV vaccine had been regulated and is, is available on the private sector in India, but there was with PATH uh, and, and the local uh, two, in two states, one using the Cervarex, one with Gardasil, looking at different ways of administering the vaccine, either through a kind of campaign, you come two times a year to get it, or through routine systems. It was really to look into what was the best delivery modes. At any rate, the, the work that was done in terms of community engagement was really, I thought, excellent. It was, there was a lot of attention to getting the community engaged. There was pretty high levels of acceptance, 70 to 80 percent, a little bit different in the two states, but that was about delivery mode. The, the resistance to this vaccine and the whole issue came from a women's group in Delhi in a totally different state on the other side of the country that started to pick up on the fact that there were some tribal girls involved in the study and some of the ethics and some of the safety. They teamed up with an anti-HPV vaccination group in the U.S. and it got together with a, a communist member of parliament in the other side of the country. So. It's a slightly different issue, but actual sexuality was not at all part of the issue. It was a, a whole mix of different things, the ethics of administering it, the ethics of the demonstration trial, the who, you were, who they were focusing on. But aside from the actual um, 
issues of why they were resisting, the fact that the local community engagement was excellent, and that's not what shut it down, and it wasn't about sexuality. It was really a mix of some factors that were genuine, and some of them were, I mean, they did at the end after not being listened to um, their initial concerns that there were eventually some adverse events, suspected adverse events, but it was basically one girl died of a snake bite, one jumped into a well. I mean, they were really totally remote from the HPV vaccine. But I think in a lot of countries around the world now, um, uh, the HPV vaccine is being uh, introduced more as a cancer vaccine, partly to avoid this this tension. The issue of um, male vac uh, using it with boys is, is Frankly, it's more of a resource issue in the other parts of the world, and it's being, it's not, it hasn't come up as a big issue in the UK yet. Let's see if we have one more question from online. We are getting a lot of online questions, so I'll just share this one. I know our time is getting short. With the surprising volume of science and medical evidence that shows a large percentage of children with autism spectrum disease have a range of immune system dysfunction indicators, i.e. physiology, neurology, and genetics, can the panel comment on whether continuing investigation should look at how vaccines may intersect to change the trajectory of ASD development rather than the, ca than the cause? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <Yeah. laughs> um, I actually think that's asking the question the wrong way. Uh, first of all, there is no evidence that I know of that says immunization alters anything in the, the uh, expression of autism. I, I just, I don't. But I think the point that the question makes, that there are a broad range of children with neurodevelopmental disabilities, and if you think that the nervous system also regulates your immune system, then it's not surprising that if you have something wrong in one area that you may have some immune dysfunction. What I think is important is that the evidence clearly suggests that these children are far more vulnerable to infectious diseases um, than children who do not have neurodevelopmental disabilities. Uh, there was a paper published last year about the mortality and morbidity rates among children with neurodevelopmental disabilities due to influenza. And so the fact is that the risk of not immunizing in the context of neurodevelopmental disabilities is really quite severe, that these kids are more vulnerable to these conditions and really should be immunized because in order to protect them. Okay, I think we are out of time. And I wanna thank the panel, thank the audience. Uh, I think we've covered a, bu a bunch of the issues. This will be broadcast, it's being broadcast live and then we'll uh, be broadcast further uh, as we go on and uh, questions should continue. Thank you very much. This has been a production of The Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing The Forum.